0: As a plant-based cheese company, Daya has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Daya cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Dea, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Dea Oat Cream Blend. Listen closely. That's not just paint
1: rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Hmm. It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Battleground podcast with me Saul David and Patrick Bishop. The big news this week is that President Zelensky of Ukraine tried to sack his highly regarded armed forces chief General Valery Zeluzhny but has been forced to reinstate him after pressure from senior military commanders and international partners. In other news, Hungary looks set to drop its veto of 50 billion euros in EU loans and grants for Ukraine, as long as it can reassess the scheme in future through an annual review. This comes not a moment too soon for Ukraine, as Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, is reported to have told Congress leaders that Russia could win the war within weeks if new U.S.
0: aid is not released. In the Middle East, meanwhile, a resolution to the conflict in Gaza seems as far away as ever with denials by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that Israel is prepared to withdraw its forces in Gaza and release thousands of Palestinian prisoners from its jails in return for a ceasefire and return of the remaining hostages taken by Hamas and other groups on the 7th of October. Well, this tough stance was reflected in a ruthless IDF operation in the West Bank when an undercover team dressed as women and medical staff raided a hospital in Janine and shot dead three suspected Hamas operatives. A slightly more optimistic development were comments by British Foreign Secretary David Cameron that the UK is considering a formal recognition of a Palestinian state in an attempt to make progress towards a two-state solution, quotes, irreversible. And the White House is drawing up plans for multiple revenge strikes against Iranian-backed groups in the Middle East, following a drone attack that killed three American soldiers in northern Jordan on Sunday morning. We'll discuss the implications of all this and after the break, hear from American journalist Joe Lindsley on the current mood in Ukraine. But first of all, tell me more about the bombshell news that General Zeluzhny is about to be sacked. What do we know? Well, we thought he was about to be sacked,
1: but it it seems that, that there's been a bit of a turnaround. The first hints we got were reports on Monday in Ukrainian media That Zelensky had made a decision to remove Zeluzhny after months of speculation about the pair's strained relationship. At the time, Zelensky's spokesman denied the reports, but it appears that the president has been determined to remove his armed forces chief since the latter told the press, if our listeners will remember this, that the war was at a stalemate. That was a few months ago. A claim that some of Zelensky's top aides said was akin to aiding the enemy. Now, this delay in attempting to remove Zaluziany was apparently down to fear of a public backlash. We've mentioned, of course, before that the general enjoys an 88% approval rating compared to Zelensky's 62%. Well, this week, Zelensky finally made his move by offering Zeluzhny a job as a defence advisor, which, according to the Financial Times, the general rejected. When this got out, senior commanders and international partners, including the US and the UK, expressed their concern. Now, apparently, Zelensky tried to offer the job, that is, the top job, to both Budanov, the chief of Ukraine's military intelligence, and Colonel General Oleksandr Sersky, the commander of Ukraine's land forces both refused to accept it. And after that, Zelensky was forced to backtrack. It's dramatic stuff, isn't it, Patrick, which I think can only benefit Russia. How do you see this?
0: I absolutely, Saul. They must be loving this in the Kremlin. But having said that, Zelensky, I think, really did stick his neck out, didn't he, with that interview with The Economist last autumn, when he admitted the counteroffensive was stalemated and um, speculated that without a Miracle weapon. The war couldn't really be won by Ukraine, given the disparity in human and other resources. So, as you say, under a a very sharp rebuke from the president and those around him, but it clearly wasn't enough. But you know, looking at it another way, the fact is that this is out in the open. I think kind of speaks quite well of Ukraine, doesn't it? It shows that it's on the way to becoming an open society, which, on occasions like this, has its weaknesses, but ultimately is a great strength. However, uh, the fact that both Budanov, who's got political ambitions of his own, I think, and Siersky uh, turned down the job, suggests there's a rift between the military and political leadership, which, let's face it, is concerning. Well, in better news for Ukraine, it seems that Viktor Orban of Hungary is about to drop his veto for the 50 million euro EU support package for Ukraine. Why would he do that? Well, in a word, blackmail. According to a report in the FT, EU officials are said to have drawn up proposals to cripple Hungary's economy if Viktor Orban refuses to drop his veto at a Brussels summit this week. The plan is to cut off funding to Hungary to trigger a run on its currency and spook investors. This has been more or less stated by Orban's political director, who has directly accused the EU of quotes, blackmail. And the tactic seems to be working, however, because as I said at the top, Bourbon has suggested he, he would drop his opposition to the EU support package if he's offered an emergency break to pause aid in the future. Now, this is all very complicated inside EU politics, but this is something that has cropped up in the past where money f- from the centre is tied to sort of political conditions locally. So this is actually, although it sounds rather Machiavellian, is not uh, uh, not an unusual scenario. So uh, Orban's statement to a French magazine, Le Point, was Hungary is ready to participate in the solution of the 27, i.e. the other uh, the member states. If you guarantee that each year, we will decide whether or not to send this money. So that's his proviso, that he'll go along with it as long as there's a kind of review annually.
1: Yeah, and whatever the proviso and whatever the reasons Orban made his decision, it is, of course, good news for Ukraine. Uh, and it's desperately needed at a time when $61 million of aid is still being held up by Republicans in the US Congress. So worried has U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken become at the holdup that he held a joint press conference on Monday with Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, to stress the urgency of the situation. Without the aid, said Blinken, everything that Ukrainians achieved and that we helped them achieve will be in jeopardy. And as I also mentioned at the top, the war could be lost in a matter of weeks Very similar sentiment has been also expressed this week by ex-CIA Director Bill Burns, who warned in an article for Foreign Affairs that cutting off US funding to Ukraine would be, and I quote, an own goal of historical proportions. These remarks come amid mounting Republican criticism over Washington's financial burden and doubts that Ukraine can win the war. Yet Burns believes that the aid, so far less than 5% of the US defence budget, is money well spent. He wrote, a relatively modest investment with significant geopolitical returns for the United States and notable returns for American industry.
0: Well, let's flip to the Middle East now. Benjamin Netanyahu has scotched rumors of an impending truce by saying that he would never agree to Hamas demands for a complete withdrawal of Israeli troops from Gaza and the release of thousands of Palestinians from Israeli jails. Earlier, Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh, said that he was studying the proposed ceasefire deal which had been hammered out in Paris last week and that it would require a complete and permanent truce. Well, as if to confirm the government's hardline position, a secret Israeli undercover unit has carried out a targeted assassination of three suspected terrorists in a hospital in Janine in the West Bank. The Israelis enter the hospital disguised as doctors and patients, some of them, I believe, dressed as women, with one leaping out of a wheelchair before they opened fire with silenced weapons, killing the three men. The raid took just a matter of minutes before the unit escaped. The IDF said the three dead men had been hiding in hospitals, quotes, for a long time and were planning to carry out a terror attack. Well, Hamas said that the the victims were their members and called the raid a cowardly assassination. It also said that Israel's crimes will not go unanswered. And that such extrajudicial killings are quotes a continuation of the occupation's ongoing crimes against our people from Gaza to Jenin. Well, Hamas is certainly right about one thing, Saul, isn't it? That there's there's a lot of uh, previous on this, a long history of this type of targeted killing by the IDF.
1: Yeah, there is, and it goes all the way back to prior to the Entebbe raid. Um, this raid, it was like something out of the popular Netflix drama, *Fauda*, which I mentioned on the podcast before. Um, and any listeners who want to get a sense of how these undercover units operate, have a look at that drama because it stars someone who actually was in one of those units uh, and advisors are, you know, it, it's very true to life. Targeted killings uh, is, as you say, Patrick, a a tactic that's long been used by the Israeli Secret Service and its special forces. I suppose the most famous incident of this was after the killing of Israeli athletes by the Palestinian terror group Black September at the Munich Olympics in 1972. And this is when the Israelis launched an operation called Wrath of God. I mean, you know, you can go into a lot of details about this. It, It was eventually turned into the very good Steven Spielberg film, Uh, Munich, but just to give you a sense of what actually happened, well, a secret Israeli committee chaired by the Prime Minister Golda Meir and the Defence Minister Moshi Dayan authorised the assassination of everyone directly or indirectly involved with those killings in Munich. The Wrath of God hit squad, codenamed Bayonet, was made up of members of Mossad, Israel's foreign intelligence agency, and supported by special operations teams from the IDF. And this group spent years tracking down and killing those suspected of planning or participating in the Munich massacre. And actually, Patrick, on one of the previous podcasts, you mentioned Ehud Barak's involvement in all of this. He was then the leader of the IDF's elite Siret Makkal unit. That's the equivalent of our SAS Uh, and they developed an audacious plan to strike at the PO leadership in Beirut. This was an operation called Spring of Youth that involved an amphibious assertion of commando teams into Beirut uh, when they targeted and killed leaders of the PFLP, that's the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Uh, and apparently during that raid, Barak himself was dressed as a woman. Well, these targeted killings came to an end in 1973 when there was an infamous cock-up in Lillehammer in Norway uh, when they got the wrong person, basically. And this led to the arrest and conviction of five Mossad operatives, as well as the unravelling of Mossad's extensive network of agents and safe houses throughout Europe. This led, as I say, to the suspension of the killings, although they were activated one more time in 1979. This is just one example. There is, as we know, a long history of these type of targeted killings by Israel. It never makes me feel that comfortable, Patrick. What's your feeling about it?
0: Yeah, well, those operations you're talking about, Saul, they was still back in the sort of David and Goliath days, weren't they, when Israel was perceived worldwide really uh, as the underdog. Well, I think uh, public perceptions have changed. Quite a lot since then, the roles have been reversed, and it's Israel playing the role of Goliath. But just on the specifics of of this operation, this is definitely an escalation of previous practice. Uh, Snatch squads have often, I think, made arrests in hospitals, in Palestinian hospitals before, but they've never actually killed anyone inside one. Now, there's no doubt that the dead men were members of uh, Hamas and its affiliates. Nonetheless, I think like you, Saul, a lot of people will have had issues about this, the shooting of three apparently defenseless men. One of them, I think, was being treated there for having been hit in a previous airstrike. You know, if, if these guys were planning a terror attack on the scale of the 7th of October, why not take them prisoner and gain valuable intelligence from them? It doesn't really sit well with the RDF's claim to be wedded to the notion of purity and of arms, does it? And I can't help thinking that the operation was at least partly a propaganda effort to give more substance to the claim that Palestinian medical facilities are routinely used by Hamas to hide and to launch operations and plan operations, and thereby give some justification for the bombing of hospitals in Gaza. Okay, well, well, we also mentioned at the top David Cameron's remarks made at a reception of Arab ambassadors in London that the UK is considering whether to formally recognize a Palestinian state. He said, quotes, most important of all is to give the Palestinian people a political horizon so that they can see that there is going to be irreversible progress to a two-state solution and, crucially, the establishment of a Palestinian state. Now, this is a pretty big deal uh, because this would be a big split with the US. I mean, the US has has steadfastly uh, refused this. A lot of countries around the world have accepted there is or have recognized Palestine as a state on the territories of Gaza and the West Bank. And Cameron says that uh, by doing this, this would help make progress towards the establishment of a real uh, Palestinian state irreversible. I think by saying that, Saul, don't you think he, he's actually more or less committed uh, the British government or the Conservative government into doing that? And of course, if there's a Labour government, I imagine they would be very much on the same page. So I think just on the numbers, Palestine is currently recognised as a state by 139 of the 193 members of the UN. And if Britain joined that number, that would be a big boost for for the demand for Palestinian statehood, I would have thought, just in international diplomatic terms.
1: Yeah, and it does seem that uh, Cameron was going on his own to a certain extent on this one, because, you know, a government spokesman has actually said, well, that is not official government policy yet. But as you say, he's rather bumped them into this. Okay, the final bit of uh, interesting news this week was uh, U.S. President Joe Biden saying he'll respond to the killing of three American servicemen in North Jordan in a drone attack by Iranian-backed militants on Sunday with multiple revenge strikes against those he holds responsible. But none of them have been launched yet, and they're obviously biding their time and trying to decide exactly how to do this. Meanwhile, um, moving to the Red Sea, Britain has said it's going to send one of its two new aircraft carriers to assist the Americans in repelling drone and missile attacks on civilian shipping from Houthi rebels in Yemen that we mentioned last week. So it's definitely hotting up in the Middle East, Patrick, isn't it? Which might explain why General Sir Patrick Sanders, Britain's chief of the general staff, this week suggested that Britain might have to introduce conscription in the event of war. Um, my daughter, by the way, immediately contacted me and said, do you think this is about to happen? I mean, she, she's slightly worried about her boyfriend rather than herself. So was it a helpful comment or scaremongering?
0: Do you Think Patrick from Saunders? Well, it was it was interesting, but before we get to that, Saul, I just uh, it is quite good news that one of these two enormously expensive uh, aircraft carriers, the Queen Elizabeth and the Prince of Wales, will actually see some action be put to use uh, in some form or another. I was at a um, at a gathering being addressed by a very senior former RAF officer. The other night when he was, you'd probably say the RAF would say this about the Navy, <laughs> but, but uh, he was saying that it, it was a pretty sort of unfortunate move that to invest all this money in these two carriers, one of which it may well be sold, which would leave us with one carrier. And as you know, you know, given the the constant updating, refitting that's, that's required of these huge naval units, it means that it would spend a hell of a lot, a lot of the time in dock being sort of refurbed, if you like which would mean that its operational use was was completely sort of hit and miss. You know, you just had to gamble on the fact that it would be at sea or operational at a time when there was a, an international crisis. So I think that, that political and, and naval decision, actually largely a political decision, was misguided. Anyway, to get back to this statement by Patrick Sanders, I think it was, as you say, a bit of tactical scaremongering to get people used to the idea that at some point in the future, you know, we may have to think much more seriously about our defense needs and requirements. Well, not in the future, we need to think about it now. But it does fit into this wider media picture of uh, projections about how the Ukraine conflict might lead to further Russian invasions in the Baltics or whatever, um, that will drag us into a NATO war. Well, I personally think this is highly fanciful. You know, Russia's special military operation, so-called whatever it might achieve for Moscow politically was militarily a disaster. We should never lose sight of this. And it's only weakened their offensive strength considerably and also heavily depleted their armory so that, as far as I can see, they're simply not in a position to attack anyone anytime soon. Okay, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be hearing from American journalist Joe Lindsley on the current mood in Ukraine and also answering listeners' questions. It's Patrick here, by the way. Good to hear from you again. Tell us something about uh, what's actually happening in in Kharkiv. It has been subjected to a lot of bombardment in recent days, hasn't it?
2: Indeed. Uh, You know, I was here very often last year in 2023. And from really from from last spring, I mean, from the first anniversary of the full scale invasion, everyone thought something horrible was going to happen February 24th, 2023. And when it didn't, uh, I was here at that time. The city sort of found a new life, and people began to come back. Uh, it's crazy to think about it because it is—it is just about thirty miles uh, from the Russian border. And last summer and fall, uh, shops and restaurants are reopening. Uh, there is traffic again. Uh, people say that they're the first time in their lives they never complained about traffic. It would bring you know give people tears to to see it, and so the city was coming back to life and and rebuilding already. And then from uh, December twenty eighth. Of last year, you know, New Year's weekend, the Russians began to pound this city. Uh, it started with several days of very intense attacks, including one night, one afternoon, and night with 23 missiles that hit the city, which is an absolute pounding. And so, ever, I was in Lviv at the time, but I wanted, to, you know, I, I wanted to be here, and I knew everyone was suffering immensely. I had never heard fear in people's voices from Kharkiv before because they they've been through so much until New Year's weekend. And I think, you know, when I was in Lviv, it's easy to – the further away you are, I think, from the thick of it and, – and Lviv was attacked, too, over New Year's. It was a big Russian effort. But um, the further away you are from the thick of it, it's easier to get depressed. I think this applies also to people in faraway capitals. Uh, and so I kind of wanted just to, to get away for a while, go to a beach in Mexico, and somehow I found myself on a train coming the opposite direction – Uh, straight to to, to Kharkiv and being here, there's a clarity here. And I think, you know, everyone, those people who live here, uh, they do so very intentionally. They know, they know it's dangerous and and they know that, um, I mean, really at any moment, as as everyone calls it, it's it's literally a Russian roulette and it's terrifying to be here. But there's this, everyone I speak with here says very consciously, it's important to be here because if the people left, then that would open the city up for Russian occupation. And so everyone, all the civilians here, too, are a front in a way. They're keeping this city uh, as part of the resistance. And the nature of these attacks is, uh, I mean, the Russians have been once again pounding the center of the city. Uh, they were targeting hotels, which certainly discourages foreigners coming. So the that, that, you know, Russians don't want people to see what they're doing. They don't want people coming to help and volunteer. I mean, it's, it's a whole new level of danger knowing that you know, everyone is, is a target here. And uh, last Tuesday, there was uh, the Russians hit at four o'clock in the morning. We knew there was an incoming major attack. We had uh, for the whole country. Twelve uh, or so Russian bombers had taken off and were moving into launch position. And about three o'clock in the morning, we knew that between six and eight, there was going to be a nationwide Russian attack upon Ukraine. Uh, and so you t- you try to get some rest in that time, But there was no rest here because before that, at four o'clock, the Russians started to send missiles to Kharkiv right after the all clear alarm went off the alarms don't mean anything here in fact m- more often than not the missiles arrive before the alarm sounds but that chilling morning we just got the all clear and the missiles hit and, and they hit right in the center in, in a very quick barrage and then once that was over we knew that in two hours we had another you know the main attraction another major attack coming our way and, and so that was an awful morning which i almost forget because then that night at about 10 o'clock at night, you know, I, like many people here, had been, you, you sleep in the bathroom usually, so you can try to get some rest. Uh, you got to stay away from windows. And at 10 o'clock at night uh, in my flat here, I I was tired. I said, well, we already had a big attack today. I'm just going to lie down on the couch for a few moments. And I closed my eyes and just very close to me. I didn't know what was happening at first. I was sort of foggy in a dream state and uh, major missiles uh, hit the center of the city They hit one of the most historic buildings, a university building. And I heard from friends that there was a coffee shop I would go to one block away. And so people uh, who go to that shop rush to the scene in the middle of the night. The next morning at eight o'clock, taking a walk there to see what has happened. And amazingly, the coffee shop opened on time. Its windows were blown out, there was glass everywhere. Uh, People are cleaning up the debris. Uh, They're serving coffee to the newly homeless and to rescue workers and they're open for business. And, and that's what I see in the city every day. And even imagine walking into a place that was bombed several hours before and no one is even really talking about it. You say, hi, how are you to the barista? And she smiles and you know, remembers your usual coffee, that that is a spirit of absolute defiance that, that I see here. And I think when I'm here in Harkiv, I realize that this war is really about two totally different ways of living, two totally different ideologies. And here in Ukraine, this is a, I see it as polar, polar opposites. This is the pole of freedom, of sort of self-sufficiency and people that want to live and make something of their lives and of dignity versus this pole of tyranny and victimhood. And, th- and that's what Russia is. And Russia can't have something like Kharkiv, and so they try to destroy it. And I think as we look at all of our uh, political debates, geopolitically and domestically around the world, I think... Every country around the world exists somewhere in the spectrum between what I I see here in Kharkiv and what we see from Russia. This is like the wild, in a sense, uncontrollable, but cooperative freedom versus very dark, demonic uh, tyranny. And uh, and so that's why I'm here. Uh, And I think here also, as I try to speak to people in Washington, I I hope I have some more credibility by being willing to be here uh, just 30 miles where at any moment we can be attacked.
0: Wow, that really brought it all home, didn't it, Saul? Uh, Really got a very, very strong flavor of the dangers and the dramas of of life in Kharkiv at the moment. And good for Joe for, as he's done all along, sticking his neck out, uh, really getting into the story and doing his damnedest to bring the reality of, of what's happening in Ukraine to his American audience and now to our audience. Well, you could hear the whole thing, the whole interview, On Monday, we'll be putting out as a standalone interview, so do look out for that one. It'll be coming up on Monday, interview with Joe Lindsley, great guy who's got some real insights, not only into Ukraine, but also to the American political scene.
1: Well, that was fascinating from Joe, wasn't it? Uh, But because we're running out of time, we've only got uh, space for a few questions, And one of the first is for you, Patrick. It's from Eric Henriksen in Toronto, Canada. And he writes, I love your content and generally find it very balanced. However, please note that Russia has presented no evidence days later showing proof that Ukrainian POWs were on the plane that went down. If there had been POWs on the plane, you can be sure Russia would be releasing videos showing bodies from the crash site. None has been released so far. I highly doubt things are as Russia said they are. Keep up your great
0: work. Uh, yeah, well, this was uh, my bad, I feel, Saul. So, mea culpa, mea culpa, Mayor maxima culpa. Uh, this basically, as always, is the case when we're doing this pod. News comes in and you don't really have time to dig into it, with it at the depth you would like to. So I must admit, when the, those first reports came through out of Russia that the illusion had been shot down with 65 Ukrainian prisoners on board, I was not necessarily believing, but after I saw Zelensky go on television and say, uh, you know, don't jump to conclusions, his general demeanor uh, and the fact that they didn't immediately deny it made me think that it was more likely than not. So I'm afraid I gave it, instead of larding it with caveats, as we usually do, I was a bit more inclined to think that it might have happened. Thank God uh, it turned out not to be the case. So a typical case of uh, Russian black ops um, playing mind games not just with the Ukrainians, but with the world, and a reminder: we've got to always anything that comes out of Russia, you've got to examine very, very closely before you give it any credence. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a danger we're always running. Well, on this occasion, I think I I was uh, took it at more or less at face value. You are much better, saw with coming back with the caveats. But yeah, something that's a that's a tightrope we tread constantly.
1: Okay, another one here, interestingly, from just Charlie, uh, we're assuming in the UK, and he writes, As men who follow military technology closely and talk to soldiers fairly frequently, have you ever heard of directional drilling technology having a military use? He's a civil engineer, and while he hasn't used it himself, he's seen it utilised by colleagues and wondered if it might have utility in clearing through minefields in Ukraine. It might be, he writes, too noisy to surprise Russian positions directly, but as any surface attempt at mine clearance is apparently stymied by Russian fire, I would have thought that a shallow drill under a minefield that is then detonated to trigger the mines above might be the solution. I can't find any sign of this being considered and dismissed by militaries. Well, Charlie's gone on to give us some links to uh, explain what the technology is, and it's really fascinating. I mean, any engineers to this podcast will probably have already heard of it, but you're basically drilling relatively shallowly under the surface in a horizontal manner, And so you could do that underneath the minefield and then as Charlie suggests, um, explode from that uh, aperture that you've created and find your way through the minefield. I mean, it seems to make complete sense to me. I suppose the, the risk is how close you actually need to get to the start of the minefield when you actually begin the drilling and the risk that whatever you're using to do that could come directly under Russian fire. Because, I mean, let's remember, artillery can go an awful long way these days, in fact, has been able to for a long time. We're talking 25, 30, 40 miles uh, even further, if you're talking about glide bombs. So there is a danger that even the uh, original drilling apparatus could be identified, I suppose, Patrick, but you could do it at night. I mean, there are obviously ways around this. So, you know, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? And this is just another example, I think, of, you know, technology following uh, the circumstances of war and, and basically finding ways to solve a problem, which is what the Ukrainians, albeit in their, you know, difficult situation at the moment, are have proven to be tremendously good
0: at. Fascinating stuff. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for. Do join us on Monday for that special with Joe Lindsley, and again on Wednesday for Battleground 44. Goodbye.